There is a brand new adaptation of Shogun, the James Clavell novel that was first made a miniseries in 1980. This one is 44 years in the making. Now, that first miniseries adaptation was phenomenal, like won a whole Mm. bunch of Emmys. It stars Richard Chamberlain as John Blackthorne. It's got Toshiro Mifune. The great Toshiro Mifune playing Toranaga and Orson Welles is the narrator of that series. Oh, that series has a narrator. That series has a VO, yes. Oh. And so, 44 years on, it feels like the time is right for another adaptation. I was a little apprehensive because I have very fond memories of that original adaptation. I'm a huge fan of the Clavel, I guess, Asian saga novels. I read them Mm. when I was maybe far too young to be reading them. But I think you and me are from a generation where those books were always on our parents' nightstands. Yeah. Like that was the stuff our folks were reading. And then when we were reading books, we would like pick up this book and then, oh, look, there's far too much sex and violence for a 13-year-old to be reading. But never really a problem to any of our parents. No, didn't seem so. And yeah, so I was a huge fan of those books. And honestly, I was a little apprehensive going into this because I wasn't sure what they were going to do. And then, boy, oh boy, oh boy, one episode in and I was completely sold because it feels like Justin Marks and Rachel Kondo, who are the showrunners and creators of the series, Justin Marks, of course, is one of the co-writers of Top Gun Maverick. Rachel Kondo is his wife. They seem to have excavated stuff from the novel that was there all along and translated it to screen to give you this incredibly progressive story. Like, this isn't The Last Samurai. This seems to have this incredible balance of East meets West and points of view where everything feels natural. I read the book about six years ago. I remember thinking at the time that there wasn't really a a Western-centric point of view here. There wasn't. Okay, so that's not just me. Unlike something like The Last Samurai, which is purely told from the point of view of the white character coming to this Japanese nation. In this version of that white person's story, he's not the savior. He's not the hero. In a lot of ways, he's a fucking pawn in a bigger game in all of this. And I loved it. And I think that's something that the original series kind of bypassed, right? Because it was made for 1980s television. And so... The primary point of view was Richard Chamberlain's John Blackthorne. In this version, Cosmo Jarvis plays John Blackthorne, and it's a very interesting choice that the showrunners have made. When you meet Blackthorne, he's not a likable character in this series, not Mm. in the beginning. And that's a very bold choice to make for your protagonist. In fact, no one is particularly likable when the show starts. Like, Toronaga has a nobility to him, but everyone is doing the House of Cards, Game of Thrones thing. Yeah. And so you're not sure who to trust. And then in comes John Blackthorne, who is this English navigator and pilot. And he is the first person to get through Magellan's Pass because, because... 
the Spanish and the Portuguese are assholes and they've hidden this secret past from yeah. the English. And all of this kind of ties into the Catholic Protestant conflict that's going on in Europe. John, along with the Englishmen, want a foothold in Japan because now they are essentially pawns of the Portuguese. The Portuguese have come in, they've spread their Catholicism, they've got them as exclusive trading partners. And John Blackthorne and the British want a foot in. And that's where all of this starts. But of course, things go to shit. All of the crew die. His boat runs aground. And he is the only survivor. I mean, there are a bunch of men who are captured, but he's the only survivor who ends up getting pulled into this Japanese samurai shogun political game. It is worth noting that a lot of this is played out in dialogue and you have to sort of pay attention and keep up because everything's in Japanese, which is beautiful. Absolutely. And then you kind of just have to make your way around all these characters, right? I think the House of Cards comparison is a perfect one because there isn't a moment where somebody stops and explains to you where Toronaga's map starts and ends and where the other sort of daimyos start and end and oh what's happening with this guy over none of that you are literally thrown in the deep end and for a lot of it i found myself holding on to john blackthorne because he's trying to understand all of this the way i'm trying to understand all of this and i thought that's a very adult way of treating your audience for an adult tv show the book is absolutely fantastic, right? I mean, the book is everything. The book is political intrigue. It is romance. It is high adventure. There's action in there because there's, of course, these massive battles and stuff that take place because Taranaga is about to be usurped and killed by the other daimyos, right? They want him out. One of them wants to be Shogun. And of course, Taranaga is this very interesting character because he is noble, he doesn't want any titles. He just seems to want what's best for his people. And in comes this rogue played by John Blackthorne. And a lot of it is his journey into the Japanese culture and way of life, which he finds absolutely baffling and barbaric. I love how in this series, everyone is referring to the other person as being barbaric. I think it's great that the show gives you almost three points of view. And so there isn't a singular storyteller here. You get yeah. Toranaga, you get Blackthorn, and then you also get Lady Mariko, played by Anna Savai, who gives you a completely different point of view because the role of women in feudal Japan was also quite different and special. I think it's incredible how the storytellers balance all three of those things. What made the book so incredible is James Clavell had this ability to flesh out even the smallest of characters. Like we've been talking about the three main characters, but whenever you read even the small characters in the book, it feels like they were real and that they had rich backgrounds and lives despite being supporting acts. And the TV show does that as well. Like when you meet Fuji, you know she's got a rich background. You learn about it, despite the fact that she doesn't have much screen time. I think all of that is done really well, and I can't remember the last time a TV show did that. It's funny because 
this version of the TV show feels like what Peter Jackson did with a lot of the Rings books, right? He kept it tight to the books, but removed things that didn't need to be told in the course of that main story. I think that is the perfect comparison because yeah. obviously they haven't fit everything. The book is over a thousand pages. You can't fit all that detail into 10 episodes, but they've done the good bits version. And I think sometimes that's enough, right? Because I hate the fact that this is a 10 episode miniseries however i also love the fact that this isn't a tv show that will get cancelled eventually if they try and make this an ongoing show then where do they cut season one what happens to season two for, for example it becomes the american gods problem i was just gonna say ah it becomes the american gods problem it becomes the game of thrones problem meanwhile i think another interesting approach which I don't think they're doing here because I think it's one and done. But another interesting approach would be the Pachinko approach where season one covers the novel, but right. then there is going to be a season two and potentially more seasons of Pachinko if it does well, where they're building out the story of the novel. And I think that works given what Pachinko is. Yes, exactly. Because the Pachinko story is a generational story. You can build out character stories from there, right? Further adventures of these characters. Whereas here, you can't. Well, here, all you need to do is then go on to adapt Taipan and Gaijin and King Rat and Noble House and the rest of the novels in his Asian saga. Were they Blackthorn stories? No, they weren't. They were completely different. So I think in Taipan or Gaijin, there is a mention of Blackthorn and how he had built ships for Toranaga. There is a callback to the character. If anything, I'm hoping that this tells Hollywood studios and specifically Disney through Hulu and FX that these shows can work. And in the right hands, these shows can thrive because that's, that's the only way these things can succeed, right? Like people will tune in, people will watch and people will love. And hopefully that means then we'll get the other James Clavell novels. Everything in this show sings, right? The production value is insane. Oh, yeah. The music is Atticus Ross. So, hey, music I mean, is yeah, awesome. But for me, it's the intricacy of how everything looks. There is so much attention to detail. It looks absolutely beautiful. Like when the original came out, it was a big deal because it was the first time a Hollywood production had been shot completely in Japan. Right. And so everything was done on location. Right. Obviously, they didn't do it this time. This time, everything was shot in Vancouver. But I think the way they've pulled it off is seamless. I think the visual effects look good. The production design looks good. The world that they have created is incredibly immersive and lived in. This is one of those things where I have trouble talking about because everything just makes me go, eh? Eh? It just fills me with joy. I have very little, if any, bad things to say. Even if they are, they're very nitpicky. I'm not even going to bother. But for the most part, everything here feels like premium television at its best. Because it's got a 10-episode series, which means that it's a one and done, which means that the story gets to be told completely and fully. Production's fan-fucking-tastic. The way they treat the dialogue is really interesting as well. How the Japanese characters, obviously in the book, it's not written in Japanese, it's in English. But here, 
the Japanese characters just speak in Japanese. They don't try and faff about with it, right? They don't all speak English and then try and pretend that somebody wasn't. This one just blew me away in that I don't know why it's taken someone this long to try it. There's a beautiful conversation between Hiroyuki Sanada's Lord Yoshi Tornaga and Cosmo Jarvis's John Blackthorn, I think in episode two or late episode one, where they were speaking through a a narrator, but the narrator gets phased out and it really just looks like a conversation between a Japanese man speaking Japanese and an Englishman speaking Portuguese. And I just thought that was the way that that's cut. It feels seamless. Because obviously, Blackton speaks English and Portuguese. Lady Mariko speaks Portuguese because she is Catholic and has Portuguese taught to her. Yeah. Taranaga speaks Japanese. There are priests there who speak Portuguese and English. And then there is the whole idea of people not translating things properly because the Portuguese hate this fucking Englishman. And they're just lying with the translation before Mariko comes in as the official translator, if you will. And so there's all of this politics at play, even with language and translation. There's a lot going on. That conversation I mentioned earlier between Lord Toranaga and John Blackthorne, Blackthorne is accusing the Portuguese priest of misinterpreting him but we, the audience, know he isn't misinterpreting him. So even then, there's that layers of like, I think you're fucking with me. You're fucking with me. No, I'm not. You, the audience, know he's not. And I think all of that adds to the layers of tension of the real anticipation of what's going to happen, right? There's a real slow tightening of a screw here and you're just waiting for the explosion to happen. Can I ask a question? I read the book six years ago, which by all intents and accounts, means I haven't read the book anymore. But I don't believe there was an adult sequence fairly early on in the show, I think episode three. That doesn't happen till much later in the book, right? They speed up the relationship a little bit. But I think it works because it creates another layer of tension. Even in the books, even here, I'm not convinced that Blackthorn was slept with, was pillowed by who I think it was. I'm still not sure who pillowed Blackthorn. It all happened in shadow and it was very confusing. You're right. Also, I'm a 40-year-old man. I can't wait for the think pieces for this when it comes out because there's a line that Ana Sawai Stoda Mariko says that women are there to service the men. It's also this cultural acceptance at the time of a nobleman, a Japanese nobleman, will have a wife, but also an official concubine slash mistress. And they all live happily ever after together and have breakfast together. And I think I just can't wait for people to just lose their shit. And even the brothel is like this hallowed ground. It's respectable, right? Even the reference to the lady that they eventually get for Blackthorn, like she is the best at her game. Don't mess with her. And that's coming from the women. This is a highly respected job. It's like talking about someone who is a very good massage therapist. She's the top of her game. She's the best. You don't want anyone but her because you're so respected, because Lord Toranaga loves you so much. That's the one we got for you. I was just like, whoa. <laughs> it's exciting. I'm hoping a lot of people don't have problems with it. I'm hoping that it doesn't become a flashpoint 
that takes away the conversation from the fact that this is a very good show based on a very good book about a time that is past. To be fair, if at all it becomes a flashpoint, it'll be because of idiot American commentators. The Japanese aren't going to have any problem with this because they understand the context of history. It's a very good show based on a very good book set in a time very far past. And I think to put down any of the characters based on 2024 societal norms feels like a mistake because that in itself is part of the commentary of this show in 2024, right? It's the same bullshit commentary I'm expecting with regards to people who have never read the book but want to talk about James Clavell being a white guy writing about feudal Japan. Yeah. Without any context of who he is, what his experience was, the kind of research that went into actually making this novel happen, and the progressive nature of the story he was actually telling. There is nothing about his Asian saga that is white savior. And if you read through these, I don't know, 7,000 or so pages, you will discover that they are great pieces of literature. And what Marx and Kondo have done is actually excavate all of that progressive storytelling from the novel. It's all in the book. They yeah. didn't have to woke it up. Yeah. That's what's great about this adaptation. Like I watched it and I was thinking, wait, was this in the novel? Did they have to make it more woke for a 2024 society? And then I went back and I started reading the book again and I go, no, it's all there. And that's why this thing is so great. Also, also, we've mentioned his name, but we haven't spoken about him. But the great Hiroyuki Sanada, my God, man. I can watch him oh. in anything. Yeah. He is so good. I would watch him in anything. He doesn't yeah. even he have to great. say anything. He just has to stand there and give you a look and you know exactly what's going on. Again, being very Western cinema-centric, anytime Hiroyuki Sanada showed up, he's always been the Japanese guy in the corner, right? Sure, he's got dialogue, he'll have lines, but he's still not the lead. He's still just the Japanese guy. But here, as Lord Toranaga, good God, does the camera love him. He is emoting without emoting. I think that's... I, I don't know how else to say it. If you know Hiroyuki Sanada, you know how much he oozes class and pure energy every time he's on screen. I loved every minute of it. Cosmo Javis and Anna Savaya also absolutely fantastic. Anna Savaya, you've seen in Pachinko, in Monarch. She's really, really good. But I think her take on Lady Mariko is an elevation even of her skills. Like... It feels like she has dug deep for this and there is a balance and nuance that she brings to the character that is fantastic because yet again, here is a woman who is torn between romance and duty and culture and heritage. You forgot one more, and religion. And religion. Because she is, I wouldn't say the only noble person who is a Christian, but I think she's the highest ranking one in Toranaga's daimyo. Right, So she's come to it both as a potential pawn for the Christian priests, which Lord Toranaga recognizes and tries to use that to his own use. While Anna Savai's Mariko is trying to also be her own person. I think there are so many sort of like levels and layers here that it was just a joy to watch. 
even Cosmo Jarvis's Black Thorn, what we were saying earlier about how him not being a likable character, it's a bold choice because you need to stick with this character. And despite him not being likable, there is nevertheless a charm and a memorability about who he is. You will remember this character as soon as he steps on screen from the very first second you see him. Despite being a bit of an asshole, you're like, oh, I want to know what's happening with this guy. I was watching it with my wife and she was saying how a typical white person coming in here calling these people savages. And I was like trying to explain to her, look, you have to understand he's not wrong because he's showed up on a small fishing village, right? These people are in small wooden houses. He's come from London. It's not until he sees and he's taken to Osaka and he's just like, holy shit. I'm wrong. I am the savage. But also, everyone else is calling him a savage. He is calling them a savage. Because that's our POV, right? That's our POV when we go to a place that we think is less developed than our own. But then right. that civilization looks at us and goes, where are these guys coming from? Why are they such a big deal? I mean, there's at one point where two ladies in waiting turn to Mariko and says, oh, the engine doesn't want to bathe. And then John Blackthorn goes, yeah, I, I showered a week ago. What do you want me to do? <laughs> it's just like, holy shit, he's right. I know. My first thought when I heard that was, see, white people only bathe once a week. Once a week. Enough, once a week. La. Not God, twice a day. No, dude. What is you ridiculous? Why waste water? That, of course, is a reference to the fact that they don't have proper sewage or running water. Meanwhile, you know, Japan is the peak of civilization at that point. That sort of also plays into this idea I said earlier about how the writers are treating the audience like adults. Right? I don't have to spell everything out to you, right? Although, to be fair, at one point, Blackthorn does spell it out about how London is just essentially people on people on people, that it's dirty, that it's got trash in the streets. And at that time, that's what it is, right? That needs to be remembered, that there's a lot that is happening in this story that is happening outside the frame that informs what is happening within the frame. I think if you're a fan of the novel, you will enjoy this. I think even if you've never heard of the novel or read it, you will enjoy this. And it might even bring you to the novel. Because like all great adaptations, this one feels supplemental to it. And just like how if you watch the movies and then read The Lord of the Rings, you are getting a completely different experience. There is so much more richness in those books. And I think the same applies to James Clavell. Funny you should mention that I was looking through the Lord of the Rings audiobook reviews online and someone said, it's been four hours and we just finished the party. What is going on? Don't waste your time. Watch the movie. I'm like, you fucking idiot. I remember... <laughs> how those movies brought a lot of people to the books who were then absolutely shocked and surprised and even disappointed. And I remember speaking to people who were like, why is there so much singing? I'm like, dude, there was too little singing in the movies. There should have been more singing. The movies needed more singing. The movies needed Tom Bombadil. Absolutely. Meet me outside, you people who disagree. Meet me outside. If you're wondering if Shogun is a show for you, I think if you like romance and high adventure and political intrigue, if you like Lord of the Rings, if you like Game of Thrones, if you like House of Cards, it's all of that. I mean, there is a reason a thousand page book appealed to a 13 year old because 
there was so much happening. There is amazing history and the way Clavel kind of paints these vistas in the novel, it's absolutely stunning. And I think the adaptation has done justice to that. If you like good writing, then Shogun is for you. It's as simple as that. This feels like one of those shows that really is irrespective of genre. If you like good writing, you will like the show. It reminds me of those early seasons of Game of Thrones where people who weren't into fantasy stuff got into it because it was just written so well. I think Game of Thrones is a very good comparison on how it brought in new audiences to that sort of story. Shogun premieres on February 27th. I believe the first two episodes drop on Disney Plus Hotstar, followed by a new episode every week. Trust us, you are going to love this one. Let us know what you think. Once you've seen it, you know how to reach out. All of our social media feeds are GogglerMY. You can also email us on podcast at goggler.my or send us a WhatsApp on the Goggler hotline, 012-524-5208. Thank you so much for listening. This is the Goggler Podcast.